This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Sirius XM, Channel 132, Business Radio. Hey, if you haven't heard, we are back live at 844-942-7866 every Thursday, noon Eastern. I'm Dr. Dawn Graham. I'm your host, and I'm the career director for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book Switchers, How Smart professionals change careers and seize success. Of course, we're here with Dana and Dion who make this show sound fabulous every week. And if it's Thursday, it is open calls all hour at 844-942-7866. We are here each week to answer all of your career and job search questions. So if you've always had a question you wanted to ask, or if you're in a job search, things aren't going well, and you want a new strategy, give us a call at 844-942-7866. If it's Thursday, noon Eastern, we are live. And I have to start off with a random fact. I get a lot of random random news. And Dion and I were just talking about that. Apparently, from January 1st to April 3rd, is this year, pizza restaurants have increased traffic 27%. And in California, visits increased 77%. In New York, only about 42%, but that's because New Yorkers love their pizza. So Dion um, just informed me that apparently uh, Little Caesars, who has terrible pizza, has, terrible pizza. <laughs> has the best cheesy bread in the world. Yeah, I, I think it's like Italian cheesy. I think they call it like ICB or something like that. It's got like the garlic, the, the the cheese, kind of a lot of grease, but it's it's amazing. All right, I, I'm going to I'm going to trust you on that DM, but I do I do have a question out there. Um, what is the best pizza? Is it New York or Chicago? And guess what? There is only one answer to that <laughs> that question. But if you says, like, says, says the person from Jersey, yeah, well, <laughs> we know what your answer. That's is. That's a big big hit. I, I'm sorry, but Chicago pizza is quiche. There's, there's like, a, there, it's, it's if there's a continuum, it's closer to the quiche family than it is to the pizza family. But anyway, why is pizza, why is pizza uh, traffic increased? Um, I don't know, but pizza is great anytime. So if you know the answer, let us know. Eight four four nine four two. So it's people going into the pizza place or, pe- or people buying pizza? People buying pizza, but oh, going yeah. in to get it. Because I bought more pizza since I was home. Is it just pandemic related? Yeah, I mean, you, you it's know, easy. Sitting home, pizza's easy. Yeah. It's always, well, usually good. Yeah, you know. not always good. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. we have to. There's, <laughs> no. there's definitely bad there's pizza. There's definitely <laughs> bad pizza. Oh, uh, we could do a whole show about bad pizza. Uh, 844-942-7866. But there's our random news for the day. Um, so the last year has been definitely one with a lot of forced change with some extra downtime. Many people have spent this time pondering their goals. And, and now that we're emerging from the pandemic, are eager to to make some changes. So whether you're searching for a different career or thinking about a new fitness regimen or even just trying to change a bad habit that you picked up during the pandemic, eating too much pizza, um, then we have to ask ourselves, why is it so hard to make lasting changes? For those of us who've tried, uh, we know it is not an easy thing. And to help us with that, we have a fabulous expert joining the show. Dr. Katie Milkman is a management professor right here at the Wharton School, host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, and co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, a research center with the mission of advancing the science of lasting behavior change. An award-winning scholar and teacher, Katie writes frequently about behavioral science for major media outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, and Scientific American. And her book, How to Change, just came out on shelves two days ago, which is super exciting. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Katie. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, congratulations on your book. That is incredibly exciting. We know behavioral economics has become a hot topic because we all want to understand as humans why we do the things we do and specifically related to your new book, why it's so 
darn hard to change. And I have to kick off, Katie, with a, a shocking statistic. I read your book over the weekend and I devoured it. Highly recommend anybody who um, is interested in this topic or wants to make a change in their life to get this book. But the, the stat that really stuck with me is that 40% of early death in the U.S. is due to behaviors that we as humans can change. So holy cow, what's the problem, Katie? Yeah, no, it's amazing. That statistic really changed the course of my career when I learned it because I realized sort of the things that I was studying, I will say, for more for fun or intellectual curiosity, had the potential to have this giant impact on lives and outcomes. Um, it's, it's the small things that add up, right? It's the things that we eat, the choices we make about whether or not to be physically active, whether we buckle our seatbelt in the car, whether we drink and smoke. Uh, I just could not believe the way that those snowballed. And also, it's not just, right, when it comes to our health that things accumulate. If you think about savings decisions, if you think about decisions we make when we're in an educational context about whether to study hard or not, they accumulate in ways that, frankly, astounded me when I discovered the the order of magnitude. So um, there are a lot of different challenges that get in the way of change that make it hard to bring those numbers down. And what I've discovered over the course of my career is that a big mistake we often make when we're trying to create change in our lives or help others change, people we work with, uh, people we mentor, people we coach, is that we look for sort of shiny, one-size-fits-all solutions that sound attractive. It works for this person. Let's try this for you or let's try this for me. Instead of searching for what is the root cause of, of our inability to, say, uh, find a fitness routine that's working for us or to um, stick to our medication regimen or to be a more effective mentor, what's the barrier that's standing in the way? And then it turns out there's a lot that science has to say about what you can do, but it, it needs to be tailored. So if the barrier is you're forgetting to do it versus you find it incredibly unpleasant to do it versus you just don't have the self-confidence, you don't believe you're really capable of doing it, totally different solutions are in order. Yeah, and this is the challenge we have. We hear these, these um, you know, kind of one-size-fits-all, like if you do something for, for 30 days, it becomes a habit, which is, is definitely not the case because I have tried that. Most of us have tried that in January, and we know by February that whatever it is has not become a habit. So we hear these things, and then they don't work, and then we get demoralized because we think, oh, I guess I'm just not capable of this. But that's what I love about your book is that it gives you a variety of strategies that you can try to address a variety of problems that you can find the one that works for you. And I'm curious what role a lot of the things you're talking about um, in terms of these 40 percent of, of causes that we can change are sort of are sort of long term. And I'm wondering what role our current instant gratification plays in this problem, because it's, it's really hard to think about saving for retirement when you want to spend money today. Or it's really hard to think about losing a few pounds when you want to eat that pizza today. So so, so how, what role does that play, Katie? Yeah, it's a great question. It plays a huge role. I think it's one of the most common barriers that trips us up when we're trying to change is that we tend to overweight the instant gratification. Mm. Excuse me, taking a sip of water. <clears throat> I've been talking a lot this week. I bet. I um, bet with that new book. I see you on social media. You're everywhere. So thank you for taking time to be with us this week. No, thank you for having me. So, yeah, that instant gratification is often a barrier because it's so often the case that we don't enjoy doing the things that are good for us. And we, we actually make a really common mistake, which is, and this is uh, research by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University, shows that when we're trying to create change, we're trying to pursue a new habit, our intuition and our instinct is do it in the most effective way possible. So going to the gym, which is sort of like an example of something a lot of us wish we did more exercising, you might head straight for the maximally efficient Stairmaster to get in the most calories burned per minute, say. Um, that's a really common choice. Uh, a small minority of people make a different choice and will actually look for the way to pursue their goal that's going to be most enjoyable in the moment. So maybe at the gym, you'd go to Zumba class with a friend. But it turns out that those people have a strategy that's more effective because they enjoy what they're doing in the moment. So maybe they burn fewer calories per visit, but they keep coming. They persist. 
And they've shown in random science studies that if you encourage people to pursue new behaviors, whether it's studying or uh, working out or eating healthily in ways that they enjoy, people will persist longer. But we, we get that equation wrong. We just think we should go for the most efficient way. We don't appreciate the barrier of present bias, which is I'm going to focus in the end on what brings me instant gratification much, much more than I focus on what's good for me in the long run. And so I will fail to actually follow through and do the things that are good for me if I don't make them instantly gratifying. 844-942-7866. You're listening to Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. This is Dr. Don on careers and we are here with Dr. Katie Milkman who is a professor right here at the Wharton School talking about her brand new book How to Change which just came out on bookshelf so if you are looking for a little motivation for 2021 you definitely want to get this book so so what you're talking about Katie actually relates to um, you know we have a lot of job seekers who listen to the show and I know it feels like instant gratification to shoot an online application off and you feel like you've accomplished a lot. But what we know from the research is that networking, which might be a little bit more ambiguous and and maybe doesn't you don't get that kind of hit of instant gratification, tends to work much better. But we're, we're kind of seduced into this. Let me sit down and shoot off 10 applications, which I know in deep down isn't going to have the, the best effect versus picking up the phone and calling someone who might be able to introduce me to someone who will hire me. So how can you use your strategies to help somebody, um, you know, modify this behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that framing. Um, One of the things that can make things fun is doing them with someone else and do making them social who we have a good relationship with, who's a friend, who brings us joy. And so one way to think about making networking less difficult is to think about whether or not you can sort of bring a friend to the table, right, a wingman or wingwoman, if you will, um, to make it fun. So, so can you, if you're finding it difficult to pick up the phone and make that call or you're nervous about it, is there someone else who could literally do it with you? Like a, a, a three-way Zoom call, who has a, that connection, who's a friend, who's a supporter? Is there a way to make it social and more enjoyable and it feels more like a social meetup and less like a high-pressure conversation? So just a suggestion there to make things more fun. There may be other ways and people can sort of introspect about if it's that you you do better if you'd have an in-person meeting in a park uh, with your masks on if you're not vaccinated yet, Um, right? What is it that will make the interaction less stressful and more enjoyable? And ultimately, even if it takes a little longer to get around to it, to schedule the in-person or to pull in a third party who is a mutual friend, if you have more fun doing it, you may be more likely to persist. Yeah, I definitely think that um, that is a strategy that a lot of people have been successful with because they've they've come up with job job hunting groups. So they they get a group of people who are also looking, and that only that only maybe makes it a little bit more enjoyable. But it helps build your network. It helps you stay accountable. And I know you talk about that 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 idea of of kind of um, you know having that that accountability. But you talk about a lot of strategies, and I want to get into those because I do believe some of these can be used in the job search to promote um, behaviors around networking and some other strategies that work. And one of them that comes to mind that you talk about is gamification. And I think this is used in a lot of apps to you know show your progress or to challenge you with working with, you know, if other people are on the app. And so how does how does is gamification being being used more to motivate people? Yeah, absolutely. And also I'll point listeners to both the book, of course, but also there's an excerpt from it in Wired this um, week that talks about gamification. So like a little teaser, if people are interested in this topic, want to want to sample the book on Wired and then uh, then get a copy. Um, gamification is such an interesting area because it, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, what it does is it basically repackages an activity uh, so that you can, you know, win points or prizes or look at leaderboards or, um, you know, like get a little jiggle if you're wearing a Fitbit. When you hit 10,000 steps, you're, you reach your goal, you get a badge. So it doesn't change the nature of the activity itself in the way that um, we just discussed by sort of like, you know, choosing the Zumba class over the uh, Stairmaster or having a social date with, with multiple people instead of a one-on-one networking call. Uh, it doesn't change the activity, but it changes like the packaging of it and the way you think about it. And it, it can be effective, especially when it involves 
a goal that we are striving to achieve and we sort of opt in and say like, yes, this sounds like it'll help me if I can set a goal and get, um, you know, collect points when I achieve this goal. It, uh, it's been proven effective, for instance, in fit, towards fitness goals. There's a study by Penn Medicine researchers led by Mitesh Patel showing that when families are randomly assigned to a gamification program where they'll collect points and move up levels and um, could potentially win the grand prize of a mug, right? Like really big and <laughs> Um, It helps families actually up their step counts relative to just a, a standard encouragement type program. And Wikipedia had success getting volunteers more engaged by just randomly assigning some volunteers who had performed well to get small accolades, uh, awards next to their name that made them feel like there was something sparkly and shiny and and made it feel a little bit more like a game. So it can be effective, but there's also research showing it can backfire. So Ethan Mollick and Nancy Rothbard, both here at the Wharton School and the management group, did a really interesting study with salespeople where they uh, tried to turn the sales game or the sales experience into a game. So every time you scored, it was like a layup or a jump shot and they had graphics on sales floors depicting basketball um, imagery and there were leaderboards and you could win a bottle of champagne and in this case it actually didn't work very well so they they did a survey asked people how they felt about it some people who said like this is a really fun game i totally love it it, it was helpful to them but a lot of people said it felt like forced fun it felt mandatory and i hated it and their productivity didn't improve their happiness didn't improve and in some cases declined uh, and so i do think there's an element to it where gamification has this potential if it's a goal we want to achieve we don't feel like somebody's forcing us into it if we can gamify it tell our friends about our progress sort of set goals and give ourselves a pat on the back or stars or self um, rewards then maybe that makes the act the actions and the achievements more fun even if even if the act hasn't changed you're sort of wrapping it up in some fun but uh if, if someone else tries to impose it on you it, it seems like it isn't nearly as effective yeah I, I one of the other strategies i and i hate force fun too just putting that out there nobody likes force <laughs> fun um <laughs> uh, you talk about breaking things into smaller chunks, and I think this is a really good strategy for job seekers as well, because if you're using some kind of a gamification or tracking or you know some kind of reward system, I think it's really difficult to say, I'm going to reward myself when I get an interview, when we know that you know out there the stats say for every 100 applications online, you might get a 2% interview return. And so so you can be waiting a long time for that reward. But if you break it down into things that are a little bit more within your control to say, hey, I'm going to give myself some type of reward once I have had five phone calls or reached out to, to you know, X number of new contacts on LinkedIn or updated my resume. You know, these are things that are a little bit more within your control. And I, I just wonder if you set the wrong goal and, you, you know, you kind of keep keep failing because maybe either the goal isn't the right goal or because it's it's something so out of your control that um, it, it would take an extra long time to get to if that eventually just demoralizes people to give up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that, um, you know, Setbacks are a huge part of change. It's almost, I, I, I can't even think of an example of a person who's made a major change who I've talked to who hasn't had, you know, two steps forward, one step back. It's, it's inevitable. And one of the biggest challenges is the giving up challenge or sort of the, um, and marketers have branded it the what the hell effect when, you know, something goes wrong and you sort of throw up your hands and say, what the hell and give up on the whole, the whole thing. It was first studied in dieting where people would, you know, like be tempted and have a, a donut at a breakfast and then they say what the hell and they eat all of the junk food for the rest of the day um, but it happens with all of our goals and it's a real big challenge so um, bite-sized goals that are within your control as opposed to someone else's control are can be a really valuable way to avoid that demotivating effect there's also a trick that I love that was studied by Marissa Sharif who's in our marketing department for trying to help people stay on track when they have a goal that's in their control but they still can't you know achieve it so say say your goal is you wanted to submit so you're, say you're trying to get to that 100 resumes submitted per week and networking and then and hopefully you'll get two that, that yield something right so and then you're gonna you're gonna do say 10 a day for 10 days something like that if you have a goal like that uh, where you're trying to consistently engage in a behavior but 
you have to have a recognition that sometimes you're not going to achieve it, right? Life gets in the way. You need to be flexible. And she came up, Marissa, with this very clever idea of using what she calls an emergency reserve. So you set a tough goal. That's better than a wimpy goal because if we don't stretch ourselves, we won't push hard. We won't be highly motivated. But then you give yourself a couple of emergency reserves, sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card or a mulligan if you follow golf, um, that allow you to say, okay, you know, I meant to do that today, but every once in a while, every, there's a couple of emergencies, and I can declare this an emergency and stay on track. So she does this to keep herself exercising. For instance, she'll say, I'm going to try to work out seven days a week, but I have two mulligans or two emergency reserves if I'm in a pinch and I can't do it. And then she still feels on track if even on day four something goes wrong, she can't get her, her run in, she can sort of stay on track with her goal and still aim for that seven-day perfect uh, with just that one emergency reserve used. And she's tested this and shown that she did it actually in a project where people were trying to do a task, a paid task each day of the week. They got a, either a goal of doing it five days a week, a goal of doing it seven days a week, or seven days with two emergency reserves. And almost twice as many people accomplished the goal with the emergency reserves as in the same identical condition, which is just trying to do it five days a week or in the tough condition of seven days a week with no wiggle room. And that was because you weren't giving up. And so I think this is a really important insight. And in general, we need to be thinking more about how do we stay on track when things go wrong and not give up on ourselves. Right. So it's about factoring in life and the fact that, you know, we can't control all of the circumstances. And, and yes, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, once you give up or once you skip a day, it's really easy to skip the next day. So I think I love that idea and, um, you know, allowing for especially the chaos we've had over the last year. 844-942-7866. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Career Sirius XM Channel 132. It is open calls all hours. So if it's Thursday noon Eastern, you can give us a call at 844-942-7866. We're very excited to have Dr. Katie Milkman right here from the Wharton School talking about her new book, How to Change. But be sure to check out her podcast, Choiceology, which is very, very fun if you like behavioral economics. There's always fun topics on that as well. And I have a question, Katie, that, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about the difference between a habit and an addiction, because as, as a licensed psychologist, I studied a lot about behavioral, um, you know, conditioning. And I think one of the reasons that applying online becomes so addictive, and I'm not using that in a clinical term, but is because of the intermittent reward effect, which, you know, we know it works with gamblers. So you lose most of the time, but then you win that one time and it encourages you to keep going. And and I think that's kind of how it works with a job search is you, you apply all these jobs and then all of a sudden you get a response and you start to feel like, oh, wait, yes, this is working. And and it kind of overrides all of the other stuff. So how how does that impact how, how we change our habits or how we, we are motivated to do things differently? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you point out, addiction is a really different beast than habit. And I am not a specialist in addiction. And, you know, it's, there's brain chemistry involved in that that's really different than what happens with a habit. But there are some principles that seem to overlap. When it comes to habits, as you pointed out, there is very good research supporting, I think, a, a popularized nicely model of a habit loop, right? If you've read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg or even Atomic Habits by James Clear, um, and both of which, you know, I think do a really nice job. I talk about habits for about a chapter in my book, illustrating that, that there's a way to build them. You need a cue that triggers the, the response, um, whatever the response is, right? Whether it's like, okay, it's 9 a.m., I'm going to sit down and submit seven applications, and then you need some sort of reward that follows the action. So, oh, oh, I got a ding back. Somebody's actually saying they're reading it, and, and they le- they think it looks good. You know, whatever that reward is, and you repeat that enough times, and it starts to feel like and become a habit. And it's, at that point, um, if the reward even disappears entirely, you you may continue to engage in the habit just because um, now it's basically become mindless and gone on, on autopilot. And that, it's, that model has been studied a lot with animals and seems to apply to humans uh, to some degree, though, though it's not as if we maintain habits without any extinguishing, right? So generally when we're rewarded to do things for a consistent period of time and then the rewards are removed, we do it less consistently afterwards. But, but the same basic principles apply 
So it's hard to break those cycles, right? Because what happens is you're no longer thinking about it. There's no longer a deliberative process. You're just going into that autopilot mode. Um, and, and there needs to be some disruption, some break, some way that you sort of jolt yourself out of it. Uh, I've written a bit about fresh starts as one and resets as moments that can uh, disrupt habits naturally because, and we're, we're entering one right now as we, many of us get vaccinated, the world reopens, our habits are naturally disrupted when there's a change to the set of cues that tends to trigger them. And we can look, of course, deliberately to try to disrupt those cues by saying, you know, this is the, the time and location of the play, the situation in which I often engage in this behavior that's not great. Let me get out of that situation so those triggers won't be present. But as we, again, return to workplaces, return to socializing in ways we weren't able to for the last year, we're going to have a natural disruption. So it is a great moment to think about, okay, leave behind those old bad habits and on my clean slate and in this fresh start moment, let me think about what are the new good habits I want to establish and build before it's sort of too late and they take hold and I'm back on autopilot. Yeah, and I love I love that um, you talk about in your book how an unexpected detour or disruption can actually be used to motivate you. And I, I talk about that a lot, you know, when people have gotten in, laid off in the last year. I mean, a lot of people use this opportunity to step back and look at, at their career and realize that they weren't really happy or that they're really not doing what they were doing and using this as an opportunity to reset and say, let me take some time to get on the right path. And I think a lot of people are happy with that. And I, I, so I love in your book that you talk about this idea of, hey, you know, some of these disruptions can actually be great. So how can people use um, the disruption that they've experienced over the past year, whether it's a layoff or, um, you know, a change in their job to to really motivate themselves to to reach their goals? Because I think a lot of it has caused some anxiety and depression and that, you know, that's really difficult to to overcome when it comes to motivation. Oh, absolutely. And and obviously, the kind of disruption that so many people have faced in the last year, it's not the kind of rosy, fresh start that we were looking for, right? It's not like, oh, wow, I have a new home, I have a new job, I have a new purpose. It's, we've lost a loved one, we've lost a job. I mean, it's been an awful year. Uh, it's hard to reframe that and turn it into a positive. And I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to try to, in a sense, but I do want to point out that, um, when we have a turning point in life, when something changes, it does, of course, give us a chance to reflect because it disrupts the way we normally go through life, which is sort of with our head down, just going about our business, not thinking big picture about what are our goals, um, what are our aspirations, and again, frankly, tied to the habits that are triggered by our consistent routines. When we have these disruptions, even when they're negative, they do jolt us. And they cause us to start thinking more about what is it I really value? What is it I really care about? And that is an opportunity, even even when it comes from a negative place. It is an opportunity because you can't achieve big goals if you don't make an effort towards them, right? If you don't make a plan, start thinking carefully about exactly how are you going to achieve the things that you want to achieve. So uh, another thing that happens when we have these disruptions is the way we think about time is actually not linear. So we tend to think about our lives as if we are protagonists in a novel, which is kind of poetic. Uh, and, and we think about our lives in chapters rather than thinking like, you know, all, all, of the, all of the time is sort of equal. You think about the chapters in your life. So you might have, you know, the college years or the years in Boston or, you know, the years working at Employer X. Those, those bookends, when we we bookend one chapter and open another, they come with the, uh, the opportunity to say, oh, you know, whatever was not going well, that was the old me and the old chapter and the new me can do it. So we have this renewed sense of optimism. So it really is a, it's a good time for goal setting. It's a good time for um, trying to make concrete plans around how you will actually achieve the goal rather than just setting a goal, um, getting really into the specific details of what are the steps you will take because that's so important to success. And, you know, how will you do it? When will you do it? Um, what will motivate you to do it? Do you need someone to hold you accountable and so on? This is a great time to do that. 
Dr. Katie Milkman, professor at the Wharton School and author of the brand new book, Hot Off the Shelves, How to Change, something that you definitely want to read if you're struggling with motivation or, or changing a habit. It is definitely available on the bookshelves now or online. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on SiriusXM 132 today. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? best place to find me is on my website, which is katymilkman.com, but it's Katie with a Y, just like Katy Perry. Uh, lots of information there about the book, my podcast, Choiceology, um, my research at Wharton, and the, the research center I run here on Behavior Change for Good. Fantastic. Thank you so much, and congratulations on your new book. It's exciting, and I hope everybody takes a minute to go order that. It can change everything. Hey, 844-942-7866, you're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Sirius XM, Channel 132, Business Radio. And now it's time for a pre-break quiz. Quiz. There's a quiz. So this week's quiz is not music. It is about chess. So what is the least amount of moves in which you can reach checkmate in chess? If you think you know, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Career Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening on On Careers. On Business Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Dawn on Career Series XM, Channel 132. If you haven't heard, we are back live in studio. So if it's Thursday, noon Eastern, we're taking your calls all hour at 844-942-7866. Miss a show? No worries. You can find it on iTunes or you can follow me on Twitter where I post podcasts of the show at Dr. Dawn on careers so you can find me there hey 844-942-7866 got a career question we are happy to answer it um, and we have to answer speaking of answering our pre-bird quiz what is the least amount of moves in which you can reach checkmate in chess dion all right so <laughs> when you say least amount of moves are you counting both both people's moves or just the one person just the one person I'm pretty sure it's two. You are right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me find my ding. Wait I know. a minute. Let find me find your it. Ding. There it is. That is amazing. Yeah. How did you know that? Because if you move your pawn out of the way for your bishop, you bring your bishop to the corner, and if they move their pawn out of the way so that so that line is open to the king, checkmate. Holy cow. Now it sounds like I'm good at chess. Yeah. I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, it's called it's called Fool's Mate, and um, I, I didn't even know that much about Dion. How could I know you for six years and feel like I don't know you at all? I don't yeah, know you at all. It happens. Yeah, most most people feel that way about me. Yeah, yeah, you are you are kind of you are kind of quiet, but uh, holy cow, I am so impressed. I am so impressed. Like I can't even. That is, I had no idea, and. I it's been a long time since I've played chess, but I had never heard it's that. It's been a long time since I've played chess too. That is I think I've had it happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been on the wrong side of that. <laughs> when you're when you're on the losing side of that, it's a good lesson. It so, sticks with you. Yeah. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah. Hey, so if you're a chess player and you haven't, you didn't know that move, well, guess what? Um, you're worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, very, very cool. Um, so let's get back to it. The internet and social media has made it even more accessible for everyone to become known as a thought leader in your field of expertise, which can have many benefits in your career and open up the door for new opportunities. But what exactly is a thought leader and how can you become known as the go-to person in your field? Well, our next guest has those answers. I'm excited to welcome Denise Perso, CEO 
of Thought Leadership Lab, serial entrepreneur and author of the best-selling book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader. Denise Bersow is known for being a thought leader about thought leadership, helping leaders and organizations advance and spread their big ideas. Denise has been honored as a champion of change by the White House and has two popular courses on thought leadership on LinkedIn Learning. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Denise. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for including me. I'm so excited that you're here because, um, first off, thought leadership is is something that I think can be very beneficial. A lot of people think that it's only something if you're, you know, an entrepreneur or something like that. But I think it's really beneficial in your career in a lot of ways. And I'm so excited because social media has created an avenue to do that. It used to be that you had to write a book and and, and go through all these steps. But there's so many other ways to do it now. But I, I kind of want to start off with a definition, Denise. What is the difference? between thought leadership and an influencer? Because I think some people get those two confused. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about influencers or people building their personal brand, usually that is about bringing attention to you, whereas thought leadership is really about this idea of how do we spread ideas? How do we build sustainable change? So I think of it as sort of leadership one-to-many, thought leadership many-to-many, how do we get big change, big movements to be created, and how are we a part of that? That is really about thought leadership. And so many people feel like, you know, either um, influencing others or having executive presence or or becoming, you know, sort of a, an expert in a field requires a, you know, an ability to get in front of large crowds and be able to speak well and, and that these are innate type of, of qualities, but but that's not necessary anymore. So what, what does make somebody a, um, a good thought leader? I think the, the essence of it is, can you be a good guide from the side? So it's not any longer about that sort of sage from the stage, I have it all figured out, I am the you know, the guru, it is really more what I'm seeing the more successful folks are people who are showcasing the journey as as they are learning, as they are struggling to bring about change in whatever their arena is, as they're working within an organization to build change around a new process improvement, whether they're trying to change their community, whether they're trying to be part of large social change, take up along in that journey because during that journey, done right, you are building trust. And really, thought leaders are the trusted go-to resources, as well as the folks who are showing us the way forward. And I think that's really the journey that that if we can focus on that energy and that uh, purpose and that giving, that really will bring you the kind of following of a thought leader. Hey, 844-942-7866, you're listening to SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are here with Denise Brousseau, who is a thought leader about thought leadership. She has a great book on the topic, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, and also two popular courses on LinkedIn Learning if you want to learn more about this topic. And Denise, we're so excited to have you here today because I know I, I watched your um, one of your LinkedIn courses, and, and I, I, I mean, I learned so so much about thought leadership. I, I thought, oh, I know, I kind of know what this is, but then I realized, wow, I, I had no idea <laughs> that there was so many parts to it. And it really helped me kind of clarify um, a number of things about it. And I think one of them um, is, you know, you kind of need to develop this, this community or tribe. And you talk about why you shouldn't start with your family or friends, which I was, I was curious about. <laughs> You know, what's funny about that is that those inner circle of the inner circle people often kind of like you the way you are. And the challenge is that, you know, they may be more critical. They may be more questioning, like, really? Do you know what you're doing? Do you really have that expertise versus those outside of that circle who can be more the champions, the amplifiers? They have less reason to kind of keep you as you are, and they invite you to be that bigger person that you potentially see yourself or can over time really build towards. And I think that's why I invite people to look look a little further from home, as it were. Yeah, I know it's 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 kind of easier to start with people you know because you get lots of lots of kudos, but that's not always the most helpful thing. And and I wanna even take a step back. I mean, a lot of people are thinking I have a, a, a 
steady job. I'm doing well. I don't, you know, why, why would I even have to consider being a thought leader? And one of the things I always say is that we, the future of work is so unpredictable and things, we all have experienced that in the last year. And I think that type of disruption is just going to continue in different ways. And, um, and so I'm, I'm curious in your experience, what are the benefits for somebody to become a thought leader in their field or industry? I think it really begins, Don, with the idea of career insurance. You know, we can buy life insurance and fire insurance and all those other kind of insurances, but we can't buy insurance for our career. But investing in building your reputation as a thought leader really is that insurance because people want to hire, they want to work for, and they want to work with people who are thought leaders. So it really can build over time a the kind of reputation, the top of mind, the ability to be more memorable, and and the ability to feel important enough in your industry that you're making a difference. Those are the kinds of people that we want to bring into our organization or we want to hire their business uh, and do business with them. And I think that, to me, is the main reason why if you're of service to the folks that, that matter in your field, your particular area of expertise, likely is it's going to pay off. And I like that you address the risks. I think that there, a lot of people always address the benefits of whatever they're talking about, but they don't address the risks. And I think there are risks about it. So can you share some of those? Sure. I think the biggest risk that all of us fear is the sort of the Twitter horde, you know, the, 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 the all the the gremlins who come out when who don't have enough to do with their time who will attack whether you're someone who has a particular point of view that they don't agree with or you're a particular color or background or gender or whatever that they don't tend to like. And so what I try to advise is why it, why it really is important to build your own particular following and your own particular community who can then step forward on your behalf because fighting that sort of horde can be challenging and we've certainly seen that over, you know, in many different arenas, unfortunately. And I think that we are starting to see some pushback against some of the the platforms that are allowing this to happen. But regardless, I think you need to have others who will champion you and will amplify what you're saying as right and give you more of the benefit of the doubt if you're being misunderstood. Yeah, I think that was what I told myself when I I, um, I tend to be a shy kind of person. I don't like to put a lot of stuff out there online, but of course, do you know having a serious exam show that kind of <laughs> that, that there's some disconnect there. And I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to tell myself that when I get the first negative comment, you know, kind of the first Twitter attack or whatever, then I've made it. I'm like, I'm going to look at it as a positive that that that's, that's all. The right, that's the right approach because if we <laughs> stop and you're terrified of something that may absolutely never happen. I mean, there are millions of us who are on there who've never, ever been attacked. And uh, so, and I say that with a caveat that I hope I'm not been inviting it. But this idea is that if we stop ourselves with some potential fear of something that may slightly potentially happen, it's, it's just another reason why that sort of inner committee in our brain can be showing up and telling us to stop. And I think that we have to fire that committee really fast and we have to keep going because the the broader service that we can do, the broader help that we can do for our own career and for the whatever the changes we're trying to bring about has to offset it. I mean, we have to say, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? Mm-hmm. 844-942-7866. Do you have a question about becoming a thought leader? Or maybe you have a job search question you've been dying to ask. You can give us a call if it's Thursday noon Eastern, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. And this is Dr. Don on Careers on SiriusXM 132. We're so excited to have Denise Brosseau with us today. She is the author of the book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, has courses on LinkedIn Learning on being a thought leader. And we are learning all about the ins and outs of doing that, which is, and I love your word, Denise, career insurance, which is something we all need today. Because again, I I think a lot of the changes that we've seen in the last year have really 
been a wake up call to people about how the future of work is changing and even their things are maybe coming down. I don't think that acceleration is going to stop. So the changes in technology and globalization and remote work and so many different things. And I think, you know, you really do need to find a way to to have that type of career insurance and being a thought leader is a great way to do that. So what about uh, what role does social media play? And I know that there are certainly different perspectives on social media and the desire to be out there versus privacy. And, you know, certainly there are people who are great on social media and build up a great following because they they know all the, the tech tricks, but they're not necessarily um, putting out concrete information or deep information. And there's others who are incredible, but because they're not using the social media in, in you know, whatever the latest and greatest ways, they're not getting out there. So how do you resolve all of that? You know, I think that the first step in that, and it's such a good question because there are so many platforms, there are so many tools, it can feel overwhelming, and it's hard to know where to start. And, and so what I always start with my clients on is talking about where is your audience. If you think about the kinds of people who need to hear what it is that you want to put forward, where does your expertise going to be most valued, and begin there. The next step is then to figure out, look and model after some folks in your in that realm, in that platform, who are playing well. So you don't have to do everything great, but let's say you find another person who's a thought leader in your particular arena. Are there some behaviors that they are doing that you can model, you can, uh, model from? So, for example, I recommend one of the best ones is to start amplifying So let's say you're an expert in artificial intelligence or cybersecurity or whatever your realm is. You usually have access to an enormous amount of information. Can you be the person who is curating the best of the best, the best ideas, the best events, the best information, the best people, and serving that to your uh, on that platform to your community saying, hey, pay attention to this. Look at this great stuff. That to me is a great behavior that honestly translates to any platform and starts to bring those folks to your door. And now they're paying attention. You're paying attention to them. You can start learning from and modeling and improving over time. And I think I think um, becoming a thought leader it, it, and, you know, whether it's using social media or, or writing articles or um, doing speaking events, webinars, panels, there's so many different things. You know, we talk about uh, switchers a lot on this channel because that's one of my favorite topics and a lot of people are making career switches. And I, I think being um, somebody who's out there in a field is a great way to position yourself as a switcher, whether it's industry or function. But a little... A lot of people are a little bit nervous because they think, well, I'm not a deep expert in this field or there's others who are are much more accomplished in this field than me. But how can you get over that and how can you, you know, use this as a um, kind of transition into a new job? It's frequently true that the people who call me and hire me as a consultant in for their thought leadership are people who are looking to make a transition. They either want a bigger job and they know that in order to do that, they need to position themselves effectively. They need to be more top of mind. They need to have their expertise well known or they're looking or sort of towards the end of their career, or, you know, sort of 60, 61 or even late 50s. And they're thinking, OK, I don't want to be in my corporate job forever. I want to go start my own consulting practice, well, I better get known for what I'm an expert at or no one's going to hire me, right? You don't want to walk out the door of your day job and start at zero. So this idea of building that platform, building that followership is really critical at those stages of transition. Being that switcher, you want to be thinking a few steps before that to be putting some of that those building blocks in place start building that platform if you're thinking maybe someday you want to write a book that helps too right having the platform having the people who are are paying attention and learning to trust you and learning to look for your expertise in one particular arena in a consistent way that will be really often the differentiator yeah, I certainly think it takes some time. And um, I think this is, you know, a lot of people want to make an automatic switch. And, and I think it's okay if you're not the you ultimate expert in a field, if you bring, you bring passion and research and, um, you know, 
interesting even questions to the table about a topic. I think you can show your commitment and and insights in a lot of ways, even by commenting on other people's work or yeah. sharing other people's work, which I think is a great way to get started. It is. And that's really where that sort of that model of amplifier comes from. You know, can you find and comment on, you know, I had a client in, in Texas who was, you know, she was positioning herself to do some big work in the community. And in the six or eight months leading up to that, she started selecting all the other people who were sort of playing in that community development space. And she started putting a shout out to each one of them when someone came out with a new article or a new book or they had a new uh, event they were doing. She made sure to showcase them and highlight them. And over time, when she was then ready to launch and she put some information out about something she was doing, all those people paid attention because, you know, I'm sorry, well, we like a little flattery. We like somebody who's, you know, regularly bringing forward our information and making it, you know, and championing it. Why wouldn't I turn around then and potentially champion that person? So I think that kind of behavior is absolutely where to begin. Yeah, and I love that social media has made that so much easier. So so develop a strategy, start getting, you know, it also helps you build your network in the area where you want to be, which I think is one of the most powerful things if you're making a switch. Um, I know you talk about, you you wrote an article about um, ensuring employees within an organization are ready to take the stage as thought leaders, and many don't think about this is part of an organization. So why should organizations encourage thought leadership with their employees, Denise? One of the things we're seeing in the world, sadly, is a real decrease in trust. We, you know, we've sort of lost trust in a lot of our major institutions. But one of the last ones, according to research from Edelman's Trust Barometer, that retains some trust is large organizations, so large businesses, I would say. And large business then has this opportunity to uh, maintain and hold that trusted position by not just you know having the corporate accounts as it were talking about what the products and services of that business but instead taking the stand on bigger bigger um, causes and it doesn't have to be social causes it could be the transition or transformation of their industry well again you don't you're not going to get that story broadly enough if it is just the corporate account you need to then have the senior folks and then over time, the, all the folks really amplifying and showcasing those uh, those messages. Well, we often say, okay, you know, what's everybody? We need more thought leaders. You know, so it's like corporate priority. Everybody needs to be a thought leader. And then I say, and what are you doing to help them? You know, do they know how to be storytellers? Do they know some of the tools? Do they how do they get over their own fears? What is some ways in which you might? do some uh, professional development, some support. You can't just introduce quality as your most important priority and not put in place some initiatives around quality. So I think the same thing applies here. You can't suddenly decide everybody needs to be a thought leader and, and make it an edict. You need to think about what is some what are some of the tools, resources, development that you can do, and then what can you do to reward and showcase those who really are using those new behaviors and attitudes. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's a great way to, to like you said, develop employees and give them, you know, something to dig their teeth into as well. So this has been so enlightening. Um, I, I love the work you're doing, Denise, and um, I think a lot of people will be, will be reading your book and watching your LinkedIn learning course is because, you know, they're realizing we all need a little career insurance. And this can be a really great way if you're looking to make a switch to do that. So where can people learn more about you? I invite them to visit my website, which is thoughtleadershiplab.com. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for being with us today, Denise. Um, It's been great speaking with you. And of course, Dion and Dana for making the show sound great. And all of our listeners, we are here for you every single Thursday on Dr. Dawn on Careers. And we will see you next time. Site from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.